edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. I'm John Porch, editor at the Leaders Performance Institute, and here is an exclusive behind-the-scenes episode recorded on-site at our Leaders Meet Wellbeing event at the City Football Academy in Manchester on the 21st of May. The day attracted the great and good of the Performance Institute. While themes covered range from developing performance environments and the fulfilment of duties of care to resilience and mental health. If you're interested in reading the key takeaways, they can be found online at our performance hub at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. And in the same place, you'll find all you need to know about becoming a Leaders Performance Institute member. Because, let's face it, if you've come this far already, it's probably right up your street. And if you need any further persuasion, then over the next 40 minutes or so, you're going to hear from a selection of speakers at Leaders Meet Wellbeing. They were in high demand on the day, but I managed to elbow my way through the crowds to bring you, first of all, David Fletcher, who's the Director of Performance Psychology and Management at Loughborough University. Loughborough is the UK's premier sports-focused university, and David discussed the development of resilience and where the balance is to be struck between challenge and support for athletes. Following hot on David's heels is Simon Kemp, Medical Services Director at the Rugby Football Union, who delves into initiatives being taken across English rugby to help players survive and thrive. Simon was also name-checked by everyone else in this podcast, so you won't want to miss that. There also happened to be an international women's football match taking place on the Academy Stadium pitch just metres from where we sat. The albums are clearly audible at one point, and the second one we know here at Leaders was God Save the Queen. But do you recognise the first? Answers on a postcard to the usual address. Then came Matty Clements, the Deputy Director of Athlete Wellbeing and Engagement at the Australian Institute of Sport, who went down like a house on fire when she spoke, despite being supremely jet-legged when she was giving her presentation. Maddie's focus was on how the AIS has started to take wellbeing seriously as attitudes in Australian society shift, and she's overseen the development of its wellbeing programs and initiatives. With me, she discussed adopting a startup mentality and building out what she describes as the fundamentals of wellbeing. Finally, I spoke to our compere, the head of high performance at Management Futures, John Ball, who delivered his initial reflections on the day's proceedings. So plenty to chew on there. And if this whets your well-being appetite, then do check out our latest special report on well-being in elite sport. It features City Football Group, St Helens Rugby, High Performance Sport New Zealand, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the English Institute of Sport, the AFL's Carlton FC, the England and Wales Cricket Board, and finally, Ineos Team UK's America's Cup sailing team. The special report, along with all of our best practice insights from across the world of elite performance, are available once again at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. That's all the housekeeping, now let's get on with the show. David Fletcher, Director of Performance Psychology and Management at Loughborough University. You've just been moderating on stage here at the Leaders Meet Wellbeing event and now you're a guest on the Leaders Performance Podcast. Welcome. Hi, great to be here. So obviously you had a, a job here today, but what attracted you to come to this event and what are some of your thoughts and reflections on well-being, resilience at the moment in high-performance sport in particular? Well, I've been coming out to the leaders' events now for probably three, four years at least, probably longer than that actually, and I went out to uh, New York as well to one a couple of years ago. And I've always found them to be really stimulating, thought-provoking, um, listening to different experts and speakers from a wide range of different performance domains, not just in sport, but also business, music, etc., and also people are coming at it from different angles. So you've got um, uh, high-performance coaches, you've got people in managerial positions, you've got researchers. And so everybody brings something slightly different to the table. And I think that's one of the things that attracts me to the leaders' events in particular, 
is uh, really that mix, mix of backgrounds, and um, they're just very friendly uh, collegial events as well, where people are very willing to share best practice, and also open up about vulnerabilities and, and concerns that they've got as practitioners or as managers or coaches. And you mentioned there about well-being, and that, of course, is the thrust of the day-to-day. And I think that is one area where I think we know now that this is an area we need to pay more attention to. We really need to, to focus on well-being, not just of, of athletes, but also of staff members, of coaches, of scientists, and, of course, not just in sport as well. We're talking about other domains here today around um, high-performing musicians, uh, business people. And... Um, Actually, you know, you, you speak to anybody, actually, and it, it, parents, parents of kids, it's just getting more and more demanding. Whatever your role is in life now, trying to perform to your very best is very demanding, and you've got to look after yourself and the people around you. So opening that conversation up around well-being is, is, is timely and, and critical. And when it comes to that conversation... What sort of questions are you looking to answer at the moment in your own research? Yeah, well, I've been researching this this broad area for, well, nearly 20 years now. Um, I started out looking very much at stress and performance in elite-level athletes. My PhD was on that, and uh, I looked particularly at the stress that athletes encounter outside of the competitive area, or arena, rather, I should say. And uh, I looked at what we call organisational or occupational type stresses of high performance, um, travel, accommodation, um, coaches, falling out with teammates, lack of finances, the list goes on and on. And that kind of evolved over time and I became interested in the area of resilience. So not so much the negative side of things, but the more positive side of how do these athletes withstand or adapt to these stresses and, and how does it help them perform well. And so that's really been a theme in my work over the last five years or so. And in particular, how can we assess resilience in these athletes, uh, where they're at at a moment in time? And, and the critical question, of course, is how can we then develop that resilience? And so uh, really over the last, as I say, the last five years, uh, we've been piloting a, an intervention programme, not just at Loughborough University, that's been where it's based, but actually around the globe I've spent some time in New Zealand, uh, in Sweden, and in the United States, uh, developing this intervention program to help develop resilience in high-level performers. So that's been um, a, a real focus. And you know, coming right up to the, the present day, um, one area that I'm particularly interested in is um, how do we develop that resilience, not just to perform well, uh, but also to ensure that um, athletes and high performers can maintain their well-being over time, because. I think there's a bit of a tension there, if I'm honest. I don't think it's as simple as what we do to help them perform better will help them with their well-being. In fact, there are certain characteristics or qualities like perfectionism, obsessiveness, ruthlessness, selfishness, and rather mm, darker traits, you might say, that I think we know help people perform well. If you're not selfish, you're not going to get to the top of world sport. Um, but these traits and characteristics, they're not very useful for your well-being and they're not very useful for your relationships. And so I think as a, as a performance psychologist and also for coaches and managers out there, we've got this rather tough ethical question that hangs over us when we're trying to help athletes. Are we helping them to perform better? Are we helping their well-being? So that's really a bit of a sort of potted history of of what I've been fascinated by, both in terms of my research, but also working with uh, high performers and where I'm at today. And how close are we to answering some of those questions, some of those topics you've just described? 
we've we've made some good progress in the area of resilience over the last five years. So that's certainly developing and progressing. Uh, there's still work to be done to develop that evidence base. Well-being, I would say, has lagged a little bit behind that in sport, um, but things are changing very rapidly now. Just really, just the last year or two, there's been this explosion of interest, not just within the research literature, but also. Uh, within the sports, uh, developing specific roles, uh, well-being advisors, and directors of well-being, and uh, that, that of course is great to see. But I think one of the things that I'm seeing is that people want to know more about this area. That they know it's important, and they want to learn how to de develop this area. And on stage, Aaron Williamon spoke about performance simulation. Has that featured in your studies, and how important or how critical might they be? Yes, I mean, simulation is, is a critical feature. Um, if you think we're going to sell the dream, if you like, to athletes to go to an Olympic Games to potentially win a medal, it would be remiss of us not to then train them to perform in that environment. If you want to achieve at the highest level, not just a sport, but you mentioned music there, business, it's pressurised. There's, there's no sidestep in that. There's no getting around that. So we have to figure out how to put athletes under pressure uh, to help them step up uh, to perform at the highest level. And that needs to be progressive, it needs to be systematic. But the key thing is it needs to be really carefully done. And I've seen some absolute horror stories down the years where coaches have subjected athletes to really the most sort of horrendous stress and pressure um, that, that frankly borders on abuse. And some may say that it comes from a place of, of, of being well-meaning, preparing them for the, the highest level of competition. I would question that because of uh, a few reasons. One, the relevance of those pressures and demands to the competitive arena, but also the step up. You know, if it's a really sudden, demanding uh, task that these, you know, I've heard uh, there was a famous case in the sport of rugby of one national team that were stripped naked, sent out into the bush overnight with no camping equipment and they had to basically hunt to feed themselves and there was gunfire fired every few hours to make sure that they were sleep deprived and this was all in um, the, the so-called spirit of building mental toughness I mean it was just ridiculous so um, that's an example of it going wrong uh, what we need but I also don't think we should swing the other way and have this nice comfortable fluffy environment where everything is um, as I say really sort of comfortable friendly cozy environment because I'm not sure that that's going to stimulate the highest levels of high performance and progression uh, to the toughest arenas so it's getting that balance right and one of the things I talk a lot about is challenge and support and what we're looking for is to balance high levels of challenge and high levels of support to match that challenge and help athletes overcome that challenge so you mentioned earlier on around simulation training, and we can incorporate that into training sessions where we put athletes under some pressure, but at the same time we teach them how to meet that pressure, and it's not just a sudden jump up. And I think that's the real knack, and I think the really good coaches already know that, um, but we need to figure out how we can do that a bit more systematically and sensibly across our uh, elite performance teams. You mentioned some horrible scenarios there, but in your wider research, has there been anything that's particularly surprised you? Yes, I mean, it, well, it has been those those horrible um, sort of scenarios. I, I mentioned one there in rugby. Um, my, in fact, my PhD uh, was on, I mentioned earlier on, about stress in a national team. And this is where my interest in this area really arose, because 
I thought I was going to hear just about, you know, I get stressed out in and out of airports, so there's not enough funding, or I fall out with teammates. Uh, but actually, there was cases of covered up abuse, um, really unfair practice, uh, people being selected over other people when it was just blatantly um, people's personal agendas. There's a whole host of things that, that really, uh, as a PhD student, my jaw just hit the ground when I was listening to this stuff behind the scenes. Now, as I say, I think these are extreme examples, and I don't want to sort of scaremonger, and this was sort of 10 to 15 years ago and times are changing but the, the principle of being better educated and understanding why we're doing certain things to help athletes prepare for competition and perform the best that they can and at the same time try and maintain and enhance their well-being that for me does not happen by chance that happens by education application reflection review careful support teams and so on and so forth and so that's really what I'm about with my work and, and colleagues at Loughborough as well is is really trying to apply a really sensible and rational approach to, to what is essentially quite a chaotic ever-changing environment but it's uh, really trying to help these athletes as best we can. And has that been your biggest lesson from the process? Oh yeah all sorts of lessons along the way um, yeah, that's certainly been a big one, is how can we best do that, how can we best facilitate that and educate people within sport uh, to that end. And I'm really pleased to say that you know times are changing and people are receptive to that. Um, I've also learned, actually, there's a lot of good practice out there as well. I've mentioned some of those extreme examples of where things have gone wrong. But actually, when you work with some of the world's best athletes and their coaches, they get a lot of this stuff intuitively anyway. So you hear and see a lot of fantastic examples, you're around people that for the most part are generally quite uh, driven and positive, uh, people who want to push back boundaries, there's a lot of banter as well in sport as well which is fun and um, yeah so that's that's another thing that I've sort of learned and experienced along the way. And finally you just made a reference to your upcoming book on stage and you certainly piqued my interest, I wondered if you could perhaps tell me a little bit more about it and our listeners. That's right, actually. Uh, so this whole topic area of uh, resilience in the world's best athletes, I've been researching it for a few few years now. And uh, I've, I've spent a bit of time trying to unpick the question of how have the world's best athletes developed this resilience? And we know it is a combination of their personality characteristics, the psychological skills they develop, um, the training environment, uh, that progressive simulation that I mentioned earlier and also the expert support around them. We, we know that. But when we're talking about the world's very, very best athletes and the motivation, persistence and determination it takes to win an Olympic gold medal, not just once, but time after time after time, then I think we're talking about something slightly different. And I think uh, that, that there's various research groups that are pointing to a bit of a darker side to this motivation, a bit more... Um, almost dysfunctional side to it, where uh, th this, this is ignited by quite traumatic childhood experiences, which drives people on to succeed and uh, at the very highest levels. And as I say, uh, I've just li literally this week published a book chapter that unpicks this. And so why is it that these top-level athletes appear to be experiencing this childhood trauma? And what does it do to them psychologically? and what are the downstream consequences of that, and the good and the bad, I might add. I mean, we know, for example, not from research in sport, 
but outside sport that uh, individuals who've experienced childhood trauma tend to experience more mental health problems as an adult. That's a really quite robust finding. But as I say, there is research that also suggests that that childhood trauma in some individuals can be linked with higher levels of performance. So there's this, again, it comes back to this sort of tension. And so these characteristics around perfectionism, obsessiveness, uh, ruthlessness, selfishness, and so on and so forth can, can often be traced back to this childhood trauma and can be beneficial in certain ways for performance, but really quite harmful in other ways for well-being and relationships and you ever get married, you know, being selfish is not particularly uh, uh, desirable characteristic. So as I say, there's this uh, book chapter that I'm publishing this week in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Sport, Exercise and Performance Psychology. So if anyone's interested, just uh, ping me an email and I'll send it over. I'm sure there'll be plenty of interest. David Fletcher, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm here with Simon Kemp, Medical Services Director at Rugby Football Union. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. We're of course here at Manchester City today and you've just spoken. How did that go for you? Uh, so it's, always, it's always difficult to, um, to know what your audience um, makes of what you've talked about, but um, my sense is the level of engagement was high and I really hope that I was able to get across rugby's approach to promoting well-being uh, in the elite rugby environment. And in addition to that, what are you trying to learn yourself? Um, so I think you're, you're trying to learn um, about different perspectives. So I guess I've been working in rugby for, for 18 years. I'm reasonably well connected with other sports. But here today, really excited about the opportunity to hear from Team Ineos, um, to hear from the um, Royal College of Music. Um, my first experience of hearing about Manchester City's approach to, to well-being in the City Group. So um, just learning from great people and taking part in the breakouts. And what aspects interest you in particular when it comes to well-being? So I think the, the, the thing that, that we'd like to try and get at is how can you promote well-being? How can you enable players to thrive and flourish in the challenging environment of elite sport um, to enable them to be the best people they can be and the best athletes? What's the approach that you need to take? Um, who do you need to influence? And kind of critically, how can you evaluate how you're doing it? And is it crucial to consider them as people? You just said it yourself there. Yes, yeah, so I think it's absolutely crucial. I mean, I think all the evidence suggests that, um, that teams that promote the development of their players as well-rounded people um, tend to be more successful. So I think you know, viewing the player as a person um, and encouraging um, relationships and a sense of family and nurturing within the club environment is incredibly important. You know, the, the, the players understand what's asked of them in terms of their preparation, focus and commitment. Um, they're committed to being the best sports people they can be, but what they need is an environment that enables them to be the best humans, the best people they can be as well. And, you know, sport is is difficult and tough you know we know that um, injuries can result in a dislocation from the team um, you know reduce well-being um, equally we know that um, concerns around form and selection and retirement can be really challenging to mental well-being and I you know, think aside of the duty of care that sport has to look after its athletes um, there's a performance focus here too. And when did this become a particular focus of the RFU? So I think um, you know rugby's 
working through um, a different range of well, rugby is working through its own priorities, which may be different to other sports. So, you know, I think we've always had a focus on reactive mental health. Um, I think rugby's been very focused on getting the recognition, assessment and management of concussion right. So that's been our major work stream probably for the last five or six years. Um, The focus of that is now moving on to concussion prevention. rather than assessment, treatment and management and that's created some capacity for us to invest more resource and more time in about thinking about the mental health piece. Rugby is incredibly fortunate in that its Players Association, the Rugby Players Association, have been doing work in this space for a lot of time um, and, um, and we're, not, you know, we're starting from quite an advanced position. Um, so you know, it is one of the strategic welfare focuses for us for the next few years. And how important is that collaboration? So I think um, if you're going to change things across a whole league rather than just influence it in a single club, then you can't, in my experience, do that without the involvement of the umbrella organisation of the league um, and the Players Association. And everything we do in professional rugby is, uh, from a welfare perspective, is shaped by a board that has a medic from the union, me, the league, the players' association, and three operational leads. So that, you know, for example, if we, if we think we need to have a nominated club mental health lead in each club um, there are budgetary implications for that so we need to work with the operational leads to get agreement from the premiership rugby board yeah and and cost it out and make it happen so you know all of the welfare stuff we do is driven and shaped by medics but it's operationally implemented in conjunction with with non-medical staff who who understand the importance you know and I guess rugby is a is a sport where the injury risk is um, is reckoned to is, is acknowledged to be high, certainly at the professional end of the game, and therefore there needs to be appropriate investment in in managing and mitigating that risk and investing in resources and people. And um, you know we've been we've been very fortunate in English professional rugby in our relationship with the Premiership and the Rugby Players Association, and um, you know it's a source of great pride some of the stuff we've done. But there's still a lot more to do, and I think moving the mental well-being piece forward um, is not only the right thing to do um, but I think it's um, important from a performance focus too. And you mentioned surveys in your presentation. How important is that qualitative data, that, that information? Um, so, so, I, so sometimes it's very important. Um, sometimes it merely confirms what you suspected. Um, you know, sometimes you do a piece of research and the outcome is a, why, a wow moment. So, you know, we're doing a piece of research in rugby at the moment where we're um, collecting saliva samples to look to see if microRNAs produced by the saliva gland can reliably identify concussion. And that's a incredibly exciting project. We're into our second year. Um, it's almost completed. Um, and you know, if the final results are as good as the interim results that's potentially a wow piece of research because it might change the gay, the way that all sports manage head injury. Um, there's, there are other pieces of research where what you find supports your investment um, but doesn't tell you anything particularly surprising. I think the psychological load study that we talked about in the presentation, none of us were surprised by the findings that injury, um, performance expectation, financial issues and work-life balance were... Um, were the important stressors to players 
but it gives us ammunition um, and a supporting case to go and argue for investment. So um, data's, data's important um, and we're very fortunate that um, we have resource and a collaborative agreement that enables us to do research and publish it openly. And um, you know, and I talked to the players' board at the invitation of the players' association. So we present all of our ongoing um, and plan research. Um, and you know, the, the players, if it's research that they can see the value of, and it will make a difference to their welfare, they'll support it. Um, so we try to be um, um, very clear: is the question we're looking to answer um, important to rugby? Yes or no? Um, if it's no, then we don't progress any further. Is the group we're collaborating with, do they have a track record of delivering in this space, yes or no? And then thirdly, is the outcome of the research, if we progress with it, actually going to make a meaningful difference? And only if we get yes to all of those three questions do we go to um, considering the proposal further. Because like the City Group, we get a lot of requests to do collaborative research and you need to focus your investment. And just one final question, if I may. With regards to well-being, what do you feel has been your biggest lesson? Um, I think our biggest lesson is um, is the sense that okay, um, so people who are muddling through um, is not good enough, and that you know the absence of mental ill health is not the same as positive mental health, and we need to look to help those people who are okay. To, to thrive and flourish. Um, so we need to set our bar for well-being higher, um, and I think it's achievable um, uh, over time with sustained effort. Simon Kemp, thank you very much. Thank you. Matty Clements, Deputy Director of Athlete Wellbeing and Engagement at the Australian Institute of Sport. Welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you. Now, of course, you spoke about 45 minutes ago. It was a very well-received session, but perhaps you were struggling to keep your eyes open. I mean, <laughs> well, when did you arrive? Th- <laughs> it's 2.30 in the morning at home, so uh, I don't know why you put the Aussie on right at the end. <laughs> we needed to put it on, put on earlier in the day. No, it was good, um, and I think it, it hopefully had a similar theme to what people heard today, particularly Simon from Rugby, who I thought that was really really interesting um, his model um, and hopefully I was able to provide a few examples of how of what he was talking about in terms of the continuum and how services fit together etc so I I was really impressed with what they do on what sounds like a really limited budget. We're talking in the auditorium where you did speak just for the benefit of our listeners and people were engaged they obviously wanted to hear the message that you wanted to share but of course you were here to learn as well you already mentioned Simon's session there what what did you come here hoping to learn today? Um, I think this particular topic is a topic that you, there's so many pieces to this topic and you, you can often be left wondering, what have I missed? Um, you know, what, what are the fundamentals versus a nice to have, etc. So I, I wanted to get a bit of an understanding of how people built out the fundamentals because that's really where we're at at the moment. Um, uh, to hear, I, I think you just in this space can just keep learning um, and there's always innovative, cool new ways to present old ideas as well. Um, so yeah, it was 
to hear, learn, um, and to really go in knowing that we don't have all the answers um, and it would be very naive to ever think we're going to be able to nail every aspect of athlete wellbeing. And you're still searching for those answers, as you readily yep. admit. But what have been some of the surprises you've encountered over, say, the last 12 months? Um, surprises. I, I think there's not a better time in Australian sport to uh, deliver athlete wellbeing. Um, I think the high-performance system is really ripe in terms of level of interest, and there's probably a whole heap of different reasons why that's the case. Um, some of them because of negative um, negative things that have occurred for individuals or sports, but also because I think there's genuinely an appetite of um, wanting to do the right thing. Um, and fundamentally, as Simon actually pointed out, it, um, you know, he said the words duty of care, but it's just the right thing. And I thought that's 100% how I see this space. We can create policies, processes, mandate you have to do this, but fundamentally it is the right thing for high-performance sport to do. Um, and I think gen, uh, generally there's a bit of a groundswell in that understanding. Um, we, can do it, we can do it better. We want elite athletes speaking really positively about their time in elite sport rather than leaving the sport and saying, I'm actually worse off as a result of that. Um, I might have won multiple gold medals, but I, 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 me as a person, I'm worse off from that. That's a, that's a horrible thing for a, a, what the community would say is a highly successful person. I, I wouldn't want any athlete to feel that way. Yeah. And of course you're speaking from a specifically Australian context. Yes. <laughs> and in your presentation you mentioned the sort of political and social will for actually delivering on behalf of athletes. How important has that been? Oh, that is hugely important. Um, for us, there's genuinely uh, interest across multiple different layers and stakeholders in the country to do this space better. Um, you know, the government wants us to do it better. Um, I think the Australian community wants to see elite athletes um, as role models. Um, they don't want to, people don't want to see stuff on the back page of the newspapers or athletes speaking poorly about their experience or suffering as a result of elite sports. So I think the Australian community um, population does want to see us do it better. Um, it, it's not a bit, I honestly believe it's the best time in Australian sport to be involved in this space. And around this time, what have been some of the most important lessons that you've learned? I think we can wait for everyone to be on board, we can wait for us to have the perfect measurement, um, have nailed everything right before we execute. I'm of the belief, just get some stuff done. Like, let's just get some stuff out into the system. It's not going to be perfect. Um, we may not be able to measure it at this point in time 100% accurately to show impact, but let's just get some stuff out. We can't keep waiting for the ideal moment to create a framework, deliver the services, implement change, to just get it done. Um, yeah, I think that's that's been a massive um, learning. And I was saying to some of the other um, participants, members um, of today about I have approached the setup of the AIS Athlete Wellbeing and Engagement 
department as a startup. Um, yes, we fit into a bigger organisation, but it's been a startup mentality. Um, do we have everything clean, neat? Um, does everyone exactly know what their JDs are? Does everyone exactly know what their KPIs are? No, but suck it up and just get it done. Like, let's be agile, let's be flexible, and that's what a startup is. I do think there's a point, obviously, where we need to shift from being a startup into sustainable um, and build um, confidence um, and consistency in what we do. But the, I have very much taken in a startup approach to this. What are your hopes and expectations then for the next 12 to 18 months? I, I'm pretty ambitious um, about this space. I would love to see high performance uh, cultures, environments in Australian sport um, investing in it more. Um, into, and when I say investing in it more, saying we're going to choose to put on another athlete wellbeing and engagement manager over, I don't know, a masseuse or another, S and, uh, another S&C person, for instance, because we value the space so much and we've only got finite resources, but we're going to make a choice to prioritise athlete wellbeing and engagement. I, I think that would be a massive win for us. Um, I think another massive win for us would be um, that head coaches and high-performance directors have some KPI built in around athlete wellbeing and engagement. I might regret to say, regret saying that because um, that's very contentious and um, probably few people at this point in time would be on board with that. That would, be, that would be groundbreakingly, that would change the whole system. That not only are you going to be measured on gold medals, you're also going to be measured on the, the care, the safety and the wellbeing that the system you lead gives an athlete that would be that would be gold and in the broadest terms are you optimistic um i am i'm a pretty optimistic person anyway um and i get clearly i'm really passionate and excited about the space um i am optimistic because i think there's not a better time in australian sport we have so much support um across the system it's been surprising um well it's not surprising it's been pleasing um, so I think, I think, yeah, we could, we could do it. Yeah. Matty, thank you very much for your time. Thanks. I'm here with John Ball from Management Futures, who has been our compare for the day. John, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. And I just wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the day. Uh, how has it been for you and what have been some of your key takeaways? Uh, so a couple, couple of thoughts. I, I think it's a really important day. Um, so I started the day with that feeling, actually. I think it's a really important area for sport. Uh, I think it's been a really inspirational day. Um, actually quite quite heartening in terms of just how fast sport is, is, is moving uh, in this area. Um, some, some of the kind of key takeaways, and for me, there's sort of three or four themes that have, that have come through and, and sort of built through the day. Um, and a couple, actually, I, I probably wasn't thinking uh, about myself, which, I, which I, you know, I think is a is good indicator of a good day. So... One of the things that comes out is this is as important for staff as it is athletes. I, I thought that was really, um, really interesting, so we kind of kicked off with that right from the beginning um, from Manchester City and the City Football Group. Um, I think really interesting talk, so originally put out by Simon from the RFU, but it was kind of built on, is this idea that if you, if, if you look at what we've been doing around well-being and, and mental health up until now, um, We've been very focused on sort of where people aren't okay, how, how we fix it. So I, I guess that matches with where psychology was at uh, sort of 50 years ago. Um, 
And I, I think the real opportunity to go after is actually, we had this kind of conversation in the middle of the day that, well, if someone's fine, you're not going to have a conversation about well-being. And, and actually, a number of people turned that completely on its head and said, um, that's probably where we're going, actually. So, so I think there's a question of how can well-being help us build real high performance? I, I know we've talked about this before, but environment... We're very privileged to have a little bit of involvement in Saracens, I think is a great example of that, actually. I mean, well-being is so tied into the DNA um, of, of what makes that environment work, and I think it absolutely is a solid platform for them to perform on. I think if they, they would say if you took it away, their performance would, would start to fall quite, quite quickly. So I think that was the second theme of how do you take it towards high performance as, as, a, as opposed to just sort of fixing um, a really tangible example of that uh, was the thing about resilience, actually. So we had a great, really great conversation and, and the kind of contrast between um, the, uh, the Royal College of Music uh, and any Team Ineos in terms of the sailing, but this whole idea of how do you build resilience and how do you train for resilience, how do you develop it. Um, fascinating, actually. Um, so I think that's a good example of the positive. For me, the, the, the kind of third theme comes back to where we close the day, actually, and I, I think a fairly sobering thought from Matty. So she was speaking from the uh, Australian system, but I think the UK system would absolutely recognise this, that while sport is very inspirational and, and is a sort of highlight for many people being involved in elite sport, far too many it isn't. Uh, and actually, I mean, so she sort of said the catalyst for them doing something about it in Australia there's been a whole series of stories where people, by being involved in elite sport, were worse off than they were at the beginning. Um, so I, I think there were sort of three things that, that, that emerge uh, within that. I think there's a theme that's run throughout the day of how do you change the mindset around it. So basically, how do you normalise pe people talking about it? Um, so I think that's been really key. Uh, I think secondly, there's been a really strong theme around how do you put the right support in place. So actually, there's been a theme about you just need to put staff in place. Maddie was talking about they've gone out and, and got each sport uh, to do that. Rugby, each of the premiership clubs has a personal development manager. Uh, and then the third thing that, that, that really struck me is how do you get better at equipping people to manage this themselves and to help others? I uh, had a really interesting conversation with Simon just did, uh, after his session actually in the break was... You know, he was talking about in rugby how they're trying to get youngsters from as young as under 14 supporting each other um, and, and kind of thinking about that, which I, you know, I think is pretty inspirational. Absolutely. Sorry, that's a bit of a dialect, <laughs> but that, those, those are the kind of key themes that struck me. And of course, you've been in and around the round tables today. What have mm. been some of the noises that have emerged from those? Um, I haven't been, I'm going to be honest, I haven't listened in, into detail uh, around them. I, um, so what struck me most about the round tables actually is just the curiosity. I, I think people want to make a difference in the space and they're reaching out for solutions. So I, to answer your question, I think the, I haven't heard the specifics, but the loudest noise I've heard is just people are seeking ideas, answers, insights from uh, different sports, different environments. And when you've been looking and focusing on well-being in elite sport, has there been anything in particular that surprised you in your observations? If you... Not anymore, actually, but if you'd asked me 12 months ago, this thing that the number of people who don't find it positive, I, I think is quite surprising. Um, but that, that doesn't surprise me now. I've, I've, I've heard too many stories of it. Um, no, I think that's probably the main one, actually. And I, I think there is something about sport, just being honest, uh, 
you know, uh, about that, that for too many people it's kind of a negative uh, ex experience and it, it, um, it doesn't leave people in a great place it always, it doesn't always, you know, I think this is really important because the media focuses on the negative examples of those and I, I think there are probably, for every example, there's bound to be five people that sport is a massively positive part of their life, but, but there are still too, too many that is a negative. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that kind of immediately surprised me around it. I, I um, just from a completely different angle, I, I was fascinated by the idea of using virtual reality to recreate performance pressure. Um, and uh, what Aaron from um, World College of Music was talking about, when they measured that against heart rate, I don't know if you heard him, but if you're talking about heart rate, even measuring the blood, they were able to pretty much recreate exactly the same condition using a virtual reality set as someone being in, uh, in front of three judges to get into to the college. So uh, actually when you start to project that forward, I, I think that's pretty exciting, actually, if you can start to practice uh, that kind of resilience. It's certainly exciting. and. You mentioned the Royal College of Music there. You mm. mentioned Saracens before. These are organisations who are perceived, from the outside at least, to be doing well-being well. Yep. Do you feel that there's a movement towards well-being in the sense that people are looking at these organisations, thinking they're doing it well, and they're trying to copy their lead almost? Do you want me to be honest? I'm, I'm surprised means. not, actually. So I, uh, kept what I, so I won't be specific deliberately, but I... Um, I'm surprised how it's not new. If you take Sarah, it's not new what Saracens is doing. They've been doing it since 2009. I don't think it's that copied. So there are some environments copying it, but it's actually pretty isolated. The evidence of who you've got, so to contradict myself, I guess the evidence of who we have in the room today, the level of energy, the level of curiosity in the room today would, would say it is moving. But, but to kind of go to the heart of your question, it's surprising actually how, how few people don't look at see that as, as, as a part of their solution they just don't don't kind of get it but that that maybe that maybe doesn't surprise me because that's been the case in business <laughs> for years. I mean the research is overwhelming that a positive performance culture positive performance culture will be much more sustainable or drive it uh, and, and yet it doesn't spread as quickly as it is I mean I, I think the thing that does spread it is if you bring someone into that organisation who's an architect of it, who's, who's kind of passionate uh, about it. And if I ask you to consider well-being, 12 months, two years from now, yep. what developments do you anticipate seeing? Well, that's a good question. It's a really interesting question. I, so I think we'll get much better at um, measuring it. I, and I'm really, we, really weary how I say measuring it. What I mean by that is just getting a benchmark of where it's at and striking up conversations. Because I think, um, so I think, the leadership from UK sport in that space is, is kind of shifted the dial, actually. That's a, every Olympic sport, whether they find it comfortable or not, every Olympic sport in the country now has a kind of sense of, of where some of the culture and the well-being stuff is at. So I think that is, is really shifting the dial. I think that's giving athletes much more of a voice. Matty talked about that at the end, actually. Athletes are now talking about it. They're emboldened to talk about it. So I think, um, so I don't think you can hide from it. Any, anymore, I think that and actually, if, as I think about it live, I think that will be the big catalyst for change because people are talking about it. John, you are last, but you are by no means least. Thank you so much for your sterling work today and for speaking to me. Pleasure, pleasure. Great questions, thanks. John.